Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Scott McKay, publisher of the award-winning website The Hayride and author of the brand new book Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, It's All Obama. Scott McKay, thanks for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I want to start off by talking about who is Barack Obama. There's, you know, we would think the guy's been president twice. We would know all about him. But I want to start off with the birth certificate controversy, just because it's still kind of hanging out there. Do we even know who Obama is? The theory that we take in uh, a racism, revenge and ruin is not that, you know, he's born in Kenya or any of that. In mm-hmm. fact... Joel Gilbert, and I'm not sure if you if, if you know who uh, who Gilbert is. I've interviewed him. Yes. He made a very, very interesting documentary film a few years back that made the case that Frank Marshall Davis, not Barack Obama Sr., is actually Barack Obama's father. I, I don't fully endorse that theory. Uh, I think it's worth looking into. You can look at the side-by-side pictures of Barack Obama in between Frank Marshall Davis and Barack Obama Sr. And that will probably make the best argument for Gilbert's theory that you'll see. I mean, he does look more like Frank Marshall Davis than he does uh, the Kenyan. The birth certificate thing was never really something that I played too deeply in. Because to me, in every way that matters, Frank Marshall Davis is Barack Obama's father, whether it whether biological uh, or otherwise, intellectually and ideologically, it's very clear that he was far more influenced by Davis than he was by, you know, Obama and the mythology that was put forward mostly by Bill Ayers, who I think it's pretty clear was the ghostwriter for Dreams from My Father, which is, you know, sort of the Obama origin story uh, as fed to the American people. It's largely a fiction. It's almost Bill Ayers' autobiography more than it is Obama's. But there are things uh, that are clearly true about Obama's origin in that book. One of them happens to be that there are 22 references to Frank Marshall Davis, uh, initial version of Dreams from My Father. Those were all scrubbed out of the audio book, which was released later when Obama was, you know, then a political figure and, and a potential presidential candidate. So Davis is really the, I think, the factor that you want to look at when you're trying to analyze, you know, who Barack Obama is and where he came from. Um, when he moved back to Hawaii, uh, when his mother basically dumped him off on, on his grandparents back in Honolulu, uh, his grandfather brought him around to see Frank Marshall Davis 
periodically the entire rest of the time uh, he was there before he went off to college. And it's very clear that Davis uh, was a major influence on Obama. And in case you don't know who Frank Marshall Davis is, this guy was a newspaper editor in Chicago and a columnist in Honolulu for communist newspapers. He was a card-carrying member of you know the Communist Party USA. Uh, he was on the FBI's list of people to be picked up should World War III get started and, and was put on that list when he was essentially caught photographing shorelines in Hawaii, which you know, the implication was is that he was photographing that so that uh, the Russians or the Chinese or both would have uh, photography of potential landing zones were they to invade Hawaii. He's a, a, a sinister figure, and when you go back and read the things that he wrote back in the 40s and 50s for these newspapers, you can see a great deal of Obama's presidency sketched out in those columns. You mentioned Bill Ayers, and uh, there was an interesting analysis by Jack Cashel about the writing style in the book, and you, you said that the oh, book yes. may as well have been written by Bill Ayers, and maybe it was. But let's talk about Bill Ayers, his background, just briefly, and how he has influenced Barack Obama. You know, Bill Ayers, as, as most people know, although he's, I think, underexposed for, uh, you know, the level of influence on American education in particular that he's had. Bill Ayers was a terrorist. He was uh, a member of the Weathermen, which was a communist domestic terror group that set off bombs all over the country, killed police officers and others through, you know, a combination of lots of luck, uh, some prosecutorial incompetence, and the vagaries of the judicial system uh, managed to go from a wanted fugitive to no jail time at all, uh, and then launched himself into an academic career in Chicago, uh, happened to be a, uh, a profound influence on Barack Obama. Yeah, you know, as we discussed below or, or before, he probably was the ghostwriter for Dreams from My Father. He got Obama on the board of the Chicago Annenberg Challenge, which was sort of a left-wing foundation, did grants to schools to make some profound adjustments in how education worked, uh, and not in a particularly good way. And after Barack Obama became president, Bill Ayers then became perhaps the most influential thinker on education in America. All of these things where, you know, schools have been turned into woke indoctrination factories at the, the K-12 level, I, that all flows from Ayers. He's the guy who had, you know, ideas on how to change the pedagogy in schools to reflect anti-racism and radical egalitarianism as opposed to, you know, the traditional American cultural norm. Um, and Obama, through his education department, lapped all of that up and imposed it on the American people. And yet Obama never fully recognized uh, his connection to Ayers. He called him, oh, he's just some guy in my neighborhood. And that was an outright lie. <laughs> Bill Ayers would have been a big drag on the Obama initial ticket back in 2008. 
I want to go then to uh, Scott McKay, to the religious influencers. And there's two people I want to talk about. And you spend a, a good amount of time in the book talking about Jeremiah Wright. I'd also like for you to get into Father Flager, who was kind of a peripheral figure and a nut, and he's been in some trouble right. since then. But let's talk about those two guys and the uh, so-called religious influencers of Barack Obama. A lot of people do the whole, oh, he's a Muslim thing, because because for the first 10 years of his life, he, he grew up in Indonesia. Yeah, there was some Muslim background in that, you know, but he didn't get any of that. By the time he was 10, he moved to Hawaii. Largely, his grandparents raised him more or less as an atheist. Um, and he didn't have any religious leanings until he got to Chicago. And he needed to join a church because he needed to make some contacts within the South Chicago black community where he was trying to become a you know community organizer and then ultimately get into politics. The church that made the most sense for him uh, was Jeremiah Wright's church. You know, Wright is uh, a fairly influential figure within sort of the black liberation theology ambit. Uh, he's a guy who uh, his preachings were very much political and racial rather than spiritual. Uh, and in that, I think, he, you know, it was a good fit for Obama to be in that church. He was there 20 years. He heard all of the, the sermons, uh, you know, the ones that have, have made it out into the, the public notice where the America's chickens have come home to roost, which he said right after 9-11. Uh, had a, an interesting uh, retort to God bless America. He mm -hmm. said, God damn America. I, you know, this was a guy who really believed that white America is a satanic force and, you know, something to be ashamed of, you know, was somewhat revolutionary in his politics. You know, when Obama decided to run for president, they, you know, his campaign realized that Wright was kind of too hot to handle. And they did everything they could to keep him quiet and to essentially deny he was who he was. And ultimately that led to a break with Obama from on Wright's behalf because, you know, he couldn't understand what the problem was. Obama had been in that church for 20 years and had never said anything about yeah, negative about what Wright had been preaching. And so he didn't see any reason to stop. And at that point, you know, Obama had to salvage his campaign by breaking with with right and basically saying, I, you know, I, I don't even know this man in, in, in so far as what he says. And Wright was pretty miffed at that because he, he was of all things, he was consistent from the get go. It's, you know, very anti-white and very anti-America as founded. There's this sort of famous event at the national press club in DC when, you know, Wright essentially outlined black liberation theology as he preached it for the whole country and, and really kind of caused a stir because it was a direct retort to Obama's Philadelphia speech. And that's when Obama broke with him. But the media basically buried that controversy as best it could. And, you know, by the time the general election came on, uh, came around, there really wasn't much of a discussion of right when, you know, there should have been. And some of that, I think you, you lay at John McCain's feet for not running a very aggressive campaign to inform the American people what we were getting into. 
I don't know why he sticks in my mind, but just briefly, any insights on Father Flager, who we don't hear much from anymore, and he got in some trouble, but what what was his influence or relationship to Barack Obama? Well, you know, there was sort of this ecumenical thing between Wright and, and Flager and some of the other left-wing clergy in Chicago. Uh, and, you know, Flager was a Catholic priest who had a lot of the same uh, radical left-wing politics, you know, and, and he preached some of the same stuff, except he was a, a white guy in, in a different parish than, obviously, Wright's congregation was. Uh, but he said a lot of the same things, and he he was very much a backer of Obama, particularly in the Democrat primaries uh, back in you know in 2007, early 2008. Attacked Hillary Clinton, which was you know sort of a jarring thing because at the time it was seen that you know sort of working class Catholics would be key Clinton voters, and and Flagler, I think did some work to move a lot of those people in Obama's camp. But yeah, you're right. He's, he's no longer a figure. I mean, he's, he's kind of a sort of an embarrassment to, uh, to certainly the Catholic church and, and even to the Democrat party. So you haven't heard much about Flagler in the last, you know, 12 to 15 years. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is Scott McKay continues in a moment. Shilling Show Unleashed. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. That's Shillingshowmedia.com. Scott McKay is author of the new book, Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama here on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. I'd like to talk a little bit about Obama's political path. Again, these things kind of get lost to history as times marched on, but he was involved in the obliteration of a candidate by the name of Jack Ryan. I had forgotten all about this. Tell us. Yeah, well, I, you know, the thing about it is, and, and one of the key themes of the book is all of the things you see presently are largely metastasizations of Barack Obama's uh, history, whether it was presidential or even things before that. The controversies surrounding the 2020 election and the transformation of elections into, you know, what used to be contests to capture the, uh, the, the imagination of the majority of the public and are now really more sort of ballot harvesting competitions. All of that is Obama going all the way back to the very beginning of his political career, he had his people go and challenge the ballot petition of everybody else running for the state Senate seat that he was running for in 1996, including the incumbent. And they were you know, so successful. I mean, you know, nobody meticulously polices their own ballot petition. They just go out and get the signatures and that's that. Well, they went and they challenged the signatures on all of these people until there was only like, you know, one sort of underfunded fringe candidate 
And essentially, Barack Obama was able to go in unchallenged for a state Senate seat where there was an incumbent who was trying to run. And so that was sort of the very beginning of the Barack Obama electoral strategy, which is, you know, don't have a fair fight in elections. Um, He did have one in 2000 when he challenged Bobby Rush for a congressional seat, and he got beat 65 to 35 uh, in that. You know, that was the end of Barack Obama ever running for something, you know, when the when the the thing wasn't explicitly rigged. And in 2004, when he ran for the U.S. Senate, his people had the divorce records unsealed of a guy named Blair Hull. He was an interesting guy. He had a a, a system to beat casinos at blackjack mm. Uh, that he ultimately kind of morphed into a system for picking stocks and made himself close to a billion dollars and was a big philanthropist and all this. An interesting guy. But, you know, he was the favorite to be the Democrat nominee for the Senate in Illinois in 04. Obama's people got his divorce records unsealed. You know, in there, everybody's divorce records have nasty stuff in them. Hull had gotten in a physical office altercation with uh, his then wife, and that came out. And so, you know, they were able to run against him as a wife beater. Mm. And so, you know, that that gutted him. And then, you know, he gets the nominee uh, nomination, and he's up against Jack Ryan, who was a, you know, really attractive Republican candidate and was the favorite in the race. And they went and they got Ryan's divorce proceedings unsealed. Despite the fact that, you know, he and his his ex-wife, Jerry Ryan, the actress, were very much opposed to that because of, uh, you know, they had a kid and they didn't want the kid to know about uh, all of this stuff. Anyway, they got a judge out in California to unseal those divorce records. And Ryan ended up dropping out of the race. And Obama, you know, got to run for the Senate against Alan Keyes, who wasn't even from Illinois. And so, you know, he he won easily in 2004. You know, the two presidential races that he ran against John McCain and Mitt Romney weren't so much rigged as, you know, the media basically picked the Republican nominee. I mean, there weren't that many Republicans that wanted John McCain as a nominee in 2008. And yet he won all of those early primaries that had open primaries that Democrats could, uh, could vote in a Republican primary. So, you know, McCain ended up, going from dead in the water to the nominee in the space of a very short period of time. Um, and then, you know, in 2012, the media attacked Mitt Romney's opponents in you know such measure that Romney was the last guy standing. And between that and what the IRS had done to Tea Party groups uh, in advance of the 2012 elections, it was pretty obvious that uh, Romney, who was the most Bush Republican of the of the Republican candidates in 2012 was going to be the nominee. Like all of the elections that Obama has been involved in have been, I'm not going to say tainted per se, but influenced in ways that are not conventional. Let's put it that way. We should talk about how people were hoodwinked. I know a lot of people who are generally conservative people who voted the first time for Obama how did they pull the wool over people's eyes who normally would vote for conservatives? You're talking about the, the greatest bait and switch in American political history, which was Barack Obama in 2008. I mean, the value proposition that he offered to the American people uh, was that America could finally expiate its 
racial sins, right? I mean, you know, and if you go back and remember in 2007, race relations in this country were at their zenith. The, the country had moved together on race more than really anybody would have thought possible back in, you know, whatever, the 60s or 70s. It had gone from a very short time before, like being thought impossible that we would have a black president to, you know, almost inevitable. When he ran, that was his value proposition. And of course, there wasn't a whole lot of interest or excitement around the idea of John McCain as as the next president. And so you're right. There were a whole lot of people who said, you know what, if nothing else, we can get all this racial stuff behind us. Um, because how can a country that elects a black president be racist? And he, he essentially offered himself as that. The, that campaign was not about policy. It certainly wasn't a, about Obama's background as essentially a red diaper baby and a, and a committed Marxist. You know, it was all about race and, and what he could do for the country along the lines of race. You know, as no sooner does he get elected than all of that is exposed as a fraud. I mean, when you, you started with the, if you, you'll remember the new Black Panther case where you had uh, some of these guys standing out front of a polling place in Philadelphia with nightsticks, you know, threatening old white ladies uh, not to go in and vote, um, you know, was one of the most brazen and obnoxious cases of voter intimidation that, you know, that you'll see. And yet, you know, the Eric Holder's Justice Department essentially refused to prosecute. Um, and then you had the Skip Gates incident in, uh, in Cambridge, mm-hmm. uh, which was, you know, like blown way out of anybody's uh, expected proportion when Obama said, you know, the police acted stupidly. I mean, cop drives by and sees Skip, Skip Gates and an Uber driver trying to beat the door down of, of, of Skip Gates' house because his key wouldn't work in the lock. You know, and so he, he stops to investigate, which is certainly not a racist thing. And it was kind of a big misunderstanding. And it, in, in a different context, would be seen as somewhat funny. And yet Obama made it into a massive racial incident before kind of backtracking a little bit. And they called the beer summit. But, you know, not long after that, you had this whole series of police uh, shootings, which were not different than than you'd see in any given year in America, uh, but between the Trayvon Martin case and the Eric Garner case and the Michael Brown case and the Tamir Rice case and Alton Sterling and all the rest, every single one of these cases, Barack Obama did everything he could to fan the flames of racial animus. And by the time he left office, those race relations that were at such a high point just before his election uh, had descended into truly tragic levels. And, you know, you had things like Black Lives Matter being born, sort of the woke revolution in culture and in corporate America and, and everything else. And, of course, that was weaponized in, in 2020 with the George Floyd riots, which were you know, pretty explicitly aimed at and and making Donald Trump go away as the president. We should talk about uh, Biden as Obama's third term, but also the relationship between the two. What function did Joe Biden serve in the Obama administration? And is Obama pulling the strings now? You know, sort of the best circumstantial evidence for that case is, you know, about a year and change ago when Barack Obama showed back up at the White House. 
um, and was treated as a conquering hero. I mean, if you'll remember the video uh, from that, here's Joe Biden walking around the room and he can't get a, a conversation started with anybody because they're all <laughs> mobbing Obama. It was pretty clear who the boss is. And, you know, Obama's holdovers uh, run the Biden administration. I mean, I, you know, you always have some sort of bring back when a party is out of office and then goes back in. You know, you'll have uh, people from the previous administration will will occupy positions, but it's never unanimous like this. I mean, there are no Joe Biden people who are not Barack Obama people. It's very and the policies are all the same. And of course, Biden ran as sort of this moderate centrist who would bring the country back to some sense of normalcy. And instead, we have this hardcore, you know, left wing socialist regime running the country which is all Obama. So the, the argument isn't really so much whether this is Obama's third term as whether it's the fourth term, given that Obama was running to some extent a shadow government while Trump was uh, the president. And, you know, that that started with what the FBI did to Mike Flynn. And of course, the the two years wasted with the Mueller investigation on this, you know, Trump Russia hoax. And it ended with those 51 CIA and intelligence community spooks lying to the American people that the Hunter Biden laptop story was Russian disinformation. You could make a very strong case for, you know, that being essentially a long running coup against the duly elected president of the United States. There's no question Barack Obama is the most influential and important political figure in America you know, even seven to eight years after uh, he left office, uh, which is a kind of a, a sad commentary on where we are as a country. But, you know, more so than whether he's actually running the country in, in Joe Biden's stead. Um, and of course, Barack Obama has never shown Joe Biden a whole lot of respect as uh, as a politician or a man. That famous quote about never underestimate, you know, Joe's ability to uh, bleep things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's largely proven out by events. There, there's all of that. But th- the other thing is, is the cultural influence that Barack Obama has had on the country, you know, and, and that has manifested itself, you know, in innumerable number of ways, uh, whether it's you know on education, whether it's on corporate America, whether it's on the pop culture, and certainly his effect on economics, where we have this sort of stultified corporatist fascist uh, economic model that we're running where the federal government is, is able to exercise an enormous amount of control, you know, not necessarily just through regulation and legislation, but through sort of the cultural imperatives that Obama uh, put in place that turned corporate America woke is something that, you know, back in 2007, most Americans probably couldn't have contemplated that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the influence is profound, Obama and his wife executive produced the top movie on Netflix right now, um, which is, you know, you never would have thought you'd see that out of an ex-president. This is still very much Obama's America, even though nobody voted for it. Finally, Scott, what or who is the antidote to Barack Obama? Uh, Well, I think it's more of a what. You know, there is a movement in the country that has been around since Ronald Reagan. It fueled Reagan's success. It fueled the Republican takeover of the House of Representatives back in 1994. It, it surfaced again as the Tea Party movement. It surfaced again as the MAGA movement. And at, right now it's, it's Donald Trump's 
you know, Donald Trump supporters. But I think populist conservatism is the antidote to uh, to Obama uh, Democrats, uh, simply because so much of what Obama represents uh, politically, economically, culturally is is alien to America as founded and America as it, it succeeds, right? You go back to the late 80s and early 90s when we were at our, our sort of cultural zenith uh, as a country. I think the populist conservative movement that came along with Reagan, you know, modernized for the 21st century, obviously. But I think that is the solution. Sort of this country club Bush Republicanism that gives ground is definitely not because Obama was tailor-made to destroy that brand of, of Republicanism. And you just cannot beat Obama without going on offense. And I think that's, you know, that's the what. The who, you know, I, I, I think a lot, the best answers for that are probably still bubbling up at the, you know, gubernatorial level, at the congressional level, uh, and at the state level. I think you're seeing a lot of great Republicans who are going to be relevant within the next decade. You know, but I don't know that Washington... Uh, the Washington GOP is is up to the task at this point. And I think we've seen that in the last couple of cycles. Scott McKay, if people would like to get a copy of Racism, Revenge and Ruin, It's All Obama, or if they'd like to follow your work online, tell us how, please. The, the book is available online everywhere books are sold. Uh, check out Calamo Press's website. Uh, check out Amazon. Check out Barnes & Noble. Uh, all the usual, uh, all the usual places. Uh, I write a column three days a week at the American Spectator. Find us there at spectator.org. Uh, I've also got apparel websites that I operate. Uh, Theheyride.com, which is uh, sort of a Louisiana and Texas and Southern politics and culture website. And then there's another uh, newer site at reviver.com, which is r-v-i-v-r.com, uh, covering national politics. Scott McKay, you've done a wonderful job in making the case. I thank you so much for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.